The day began like any other. A bang on the door and a shout to get up and be ready. Ready for what? He chuckled to himself. By this point he had forgotten the day of the week. Was it Tuesday? Or Friday? It didn't matter. The day of the week didn't change what the day would surely bring. As he slowly picked himself up off the cold, damp floor, his head spun. He hadn't eaten in three days, and he was instantly reminded of this by a loud bellow from his stomach. As he got to his feet, he could hear the beating taking place in the other room. They were so frequent, he could now estimate their length. Almost finished, Adrian, he said to himself. The beating stopped almost immediately. The door opened a moment later, and the bloodied man was thrown onto the concrete floor beside him. The guards snarled at him and closed the door behind him as they left. He knelt down beside the man and touched his beaten brow with a damp cloth. Remember, God will judge us not according to how much we endured, but how much we could love. He whispered to the man, and a smile beamed across the man's face. There were two kinds of Christians. Those who sincerely believed in God, and those who just as sincerely believe that they believe. You can tell them apart by their actions in decisive moments. Richard Wombrand in God's Underground. Virtuous Man, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. This season will take a detailed look at the lives of five men who each exemplify a crucial virtue of life through not just their words, but their actions. And from these examples, you'll be inspired to cultivate a life of virtue of your own. Welcome to episode four, The Boldness of Richard Wormbrand, hosted by Jamie Adams, with expert insight from Catherine McKenzie, author of the book, Richard Wormbrand, A Voice in the Dark. A virtue is a behavior one conforms to in order to achieve a moral and ethically principled life through action. A virtuous man is one who is well aware of how he falls short, yet chooses not to allow his flaws to define him as he seeks to better himself. Such men show that it is possible to overcome the things that keep us from achieving our destinies. Though each man is flawed and imperfect, it is in the lives of flawed men that we see the possibility for virtue in our own lives. This episode's virtue is boldness. Boldness is the ability and willingness to risk everything in order to accomplish something meaningful. For one to have boldness, they must overcome adversity and have the courage to keep moving forward, no matter what or who stands in their way. Boldness takes many forms, from a soldier overcoming fear of death on the battlefield to save a comrade, to the man who stands for and speaks his convictions, no matter the backlash. The virtue of boldness is so vividly captured in the life of Richard Wormbrand. In this episode, we will take a journey through his life, what drove him to risk it all for his faith, how he endured over a decade in prison, and why, even after he was released, his passion to reach others with the gospel message never wavered. Through examining the life of Wormbrand, 
we will look to better understand how boldness is necessary in the lives of us all and how it can allow us to overcome the greatest of life's obstacles. Richard Wormbrown was born in 1909 in Bucharest, Romania. His parents were Jewish and he was the eldest child of four boys. The family moved to the post-World War I occupied Ottoman Empire and lived there for a time before Richard's father died and they moved back to Romania. Sent to Moscow to study Marxism as an adolescent, he returned again to his homeland where there was still some resistance to communism. As he became an adult, he was a student of languages and finance and was very gifted intellectually, learning to speak nine languages. His identity was something of a contradiction in these days, as he was both active in leftist politics and a moderately successful stockbroker. At the age of 27, he married Sabina Oster, a Jewish woman who would be integral to helping him realize his life's calling. Although they were both born in Jewish households and grew up in devoutly religious communities, both Richard and Sabina had been somewhat antagonistic towards God for most of their early lives. The interesting thing is that though he was atheist and he was antagonistic towards God and religion, he'd grown up in a Jewish family. He does have quite a, a very early, strong influence towards communism and atheism. But basically there is that background there, so he's not completely ignorant about you know, the Bible. And I remember reading about one of his times when he's in the synagogue as a young a young lad, uh, he's overhearing somebody's prayer and an elderly man is crying and praying to God to save his daughter. And as it happens, the, the young girl doesn't survive. And you know, I suppose Richard uses that as an excuse to not believe in God. His heart just really turns away. But while the couple vacationed in the Romanian mountains after their wedding, they would have a conversion to Christianity. An elderly German carpenter by the name of Christian Wolfkes had prayed daily that before he died he would have the opportunity to meet just one Jew and introduce him to his Messiah, Jesus Christ. Wolfkes could hardly have imagined just how great of an influence this one Jew would have on the world due to his persistent, specific prayer. He, I think it was tuberculosis that he eventually suffers from and he is sent as they did in those days to uh, what you would call a sanatorium as a hospital to recuperate after he's had several months of medical treatment at that sanatorium. He's sent for the final weeks to the mountains, so to a really healthy location where he can just recuperate. And he has a look and he picks a village and he goes there. Unbeknownst to him, there's an elderly carpenter at that village who has been praying for years that the Lord would allow him to bring a Jewish person to faith before he dies. And that was his prayer, and Richard Warrenbrand arrives in the village, and much to the excitement of this elderly carpenter. The village that Wolfkes lived in had no Jewish residents and rarely had visitors. Then, one day, there was this left-wing, intellectual, atheist Jew in his village. Wolfkes gave Richard a Bible and asked him to read it. The Bible had never moved Richard before, but this time was different. By the prompting of the old carpenter, he read the opening pages of the New Testament and the story of Jesus from the four Gospel accounts. 
Richard's eyes filled with tears as he became aware of his own wickedness and of the work of Jesus Christ to pay for and forgive his sin. He told the carpenter that he had known Jews who had converted in order to marry Romanian women or to escape persecution from the Nazis, but he had never met a Jew who believed in Jesus. From this moment on, Richard's eyes were opened to his life mission, and he would never be the same. Sabina, first angry with Richard about his conversion to Christianity, later converted herself, and Richard was ordained as an Anglican, then later a Lutheran minister. The year was 1938, and the landscape of Eastern Europe was about to undergo decades of turmoil, first at the hands of the Nazis, and then at the hands of the Soviets. Romania was initially neutral at the onset of World War II, but after a fascist group known as the Iron Guard initiated a successful coup in 1940, Romania went all-in on the side of the Axis powers. Harsh anti-Semitic legislation was pushed on Romanian Jews and by October there were some half a million German troops in Romania. Romania put its full support behind Nazi Germany and in 1941 helped the Germans invade the Soviet Union during Operation Barbarossa. By the end of World War II, the number of Romanian troops numbered over a million, and more Romanians were sent to fight the Soviets than all the German allies combined. When the American Air Force began bombing Bucharest, targeting strategic oil refineries vital to the German war machine, Wurmbrand used the time spent in bomb shelters to minister to his fellow Romanians, and even German soldiers. With occupying German forces stepping up persecution on Bucharest Jews, Richard and Sabina worked to save as many as they could, even rescuing Jewish children from the city's ghettos. Sabina would lose her parents, two sisters, and a brother to the Holocaust. They were counted in the estimated 300,000 Romanian Jews murdered between the summer of 1941 and the spring of 1944. Richard and Sabina were caught assisting Jews many times, and were arrested and brought before Nazi judges. They endured several beatings and were almost executed once before being released. Their son Mihai even had to assume a non-Jewish name to prevent his death. These Nazi times had one great advantage. They taught us that physical beatings could be endured and that the human spirit with God's help can survive horrible tortures. They taught us the technique of secret Christian work, which was a preparation for a far worse ordeal to come. Then came the Russians. In late summer of 1944, the Red Army penetrated German defenses in eastern Romania, and the Romanian monarchy was restored. Romania's war loyalties were flipped to the Allies and war was declared on Germany. The terms of the armistice with the Soviet Union were dictated absolutely by the Russians, who now had full control over the country through a puppet government. One million Soviet troops poured into Romania, and Richard again ministered to his oppressed countrymen while also boldly evangelizing to Russian soldiers. He had longed for the day when he would have the opportunity to witness to the atheist Russians, having for so long been an atheist himself. His experience with Russian troops had started years earlier, 
when he administered the POWs captured by the Germans and sent to prison camps within Romania. Through these encounters, Richard came to have a deep understanding of communist ideology. I will never forget my first encounter with a Russian prisoner, an engineer. I asked him if he believed in God. He said, I have no such military order to believe. If I have an order, I will believe. Tears ran down my cheeks. I felt my heart torn in pieces. Here stood before me a man whose mind was dead. A man who had lost a great gift God has given to mankind. His individuality. He was a brainwashed tool in the hands of the communists. Ready to believe or not on an order. In 1945, the communist government in Romania convened a meeting of the country's leading religious leaders. The meeting was called the Congress of Cults and was held in the Bucharest Parliament building. Richard and Sabina attended and were horrified at the level of seduction these Christian leaders had become prey to. Joseph Stalin was made honorary president of the Congress, a man who was the leader of a world movement of godlessness and was responsible for the mass murder of so many Christians. During the Congress, bishops and pastors took to the microphone to proclaim the peaceful coexistence of communism and Christianity, and to declare that the new government had the full backing and loyalty of the Church. One deputy bishop of the Lutheran Church had even begun teaching at the theological seminary that God had given three revelations, one through Moses, one through Jesus, and a third through Stalin, the last superseding the one before. Sabina, sitting beside Richard, had had enough. She whispered to him, Richard, stand up and wash away this shape from the face of Christ. They are spitting in his face. He replied, If I do so, you lose your husband. Not missing a beat, Sabina replied, It was then that Wernbrand stood to his feet and approached the microphone. The meeting was being broadcast to the entire nation, but Richard had a conviction that this mockery of Christ and of his faith must not stand. His message was the complete opposite of everything that had been spoken before him. He unashamedly told the listeners that these murderers did not deserve their praise, that Christ and he alone deserves their praise. The whole country heard the proclamation of the gospel from the rostrum of the communist parliament, and the audience began to applaud and chant, the pastor, the pastor, the pastor. Afterwards I had to pay for this, but it was worthwhile. Between 1945 and 1947, Richard distributed over a million gospels, the first four books of the New Testament to occupying Russian soldiers. He started one of the many underground churches in Romania. The term underground can seem mysterious to our understanding today, but to the Romanian Christians of the time, an underground church was simply one not sanctioned and controlled by the government. These churches therefore actually preached the gospel and taught of the fundamental importance of scripture. 
On the contrary, the official government-controlled churches taught of the glories of communism, of its uncontradictory relationship to Christianity, and pastors were often directly paid by the government, giving incentive to comply and propagate communist propaganda. The underground church met in private, but also ministered to the enslaved population of Romania right out in the open. They even had a particularly ingenious way of distributing scripture. Sharing the gospel became more difficult under the communist oppression, but we succeeded in printing several Christian pamphlets, passing them through the severe censorship of the communists. We presented to the censor booklets that had on the front page a picture of Karl Marx and titles such as Religion is the Opium of the People. He considered them to be communist publications and put the seal of approval on them. In these booklets, after a few pages full of quotations from Marx, Lenin and Stalin, which pleased the censor, we gave our message about Christ. I suppose if you were going to be purist about it, you might say, well, it's a bit of a deception. But actually, it's just, it, it, was a, it was a clever ruse on his part to get God's word into the hands and minds of people who otherwise might have refused a copy, point blank. Perhaps I think that illustrates maybe the, the scripture that we read in the New Testament, but how we're to be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves. But the communists would eventually find a way to stop Richard. At least so they thought. In February 1948, Richard was arrested by secret police as he was walking to church, plucked from the street and thrown into a van. The guards locked him alone in a cell and labeled him prisoner number one. Did I believe in God? Now the test had come. I was alone. There was no salary to earn, no golden opinions to consider. God offered me only suffering. Would I continue to love him? His whereabouts were never shared with his family. There were no charges leveled against him. He wasn't given a trial to prove his innocence. And his wife Sabina, though she prayed for his safety, believed he was dead. The communists even sent members of the secret police to visit Sabina, where they posed as former prisoners. They told her they had been with Richard and had attended his burial. But the underground church smuggled a doctor into the jail with the mission of finding Richard, if he was alive. The man's friends disowned him, thinking he had defected to the communists. As Richard explained, To go around dressed in the uniform of the torturers is a much greater sacrifice than to wear the uniform of a prisoner. The communist methods of torture were inventive and wide-ranging, from using red-hot pokers to skewer the feet of prisoners, to releasing hungry rats into their cells so they couldn't rest at all. One man was even made stand for two weeks in a vertical standing, coffin-shaped box with nails hammered through the sides. The man didn't break, so the guards brought his 14-year-old son into the cell beside him and mercilessly whipped him. The man finally, seeing his son near death, yelled that he must give them what they want. 
His son responded, Father, don't do me the injustice of having a traitor as a parent. Withstand. If they kill me, I die with the words, Jesus and my fatherland. The guards, incensed, set upon the boy and beat him to death, right in front of his father. One torture method still stuck with Richard long after he was released from prison. The guards had a particularly malicious form of torture where they would place the prisoner in an icebox with little or no clothes on and lock them in. Doctors would come by to assess the prisoner's condition, and when they saw signs that they were freezing to death, they would give the order to remove them. The prisoner would then be given warm clothing so they could warm up, and just as the blood made its way back to their fingers and toes, they would be thrown back into the icebox over and over and over again. Richard commented later in life that there were still times where he could not open a refrigerator. He personally had several broken bones from beatings, the guards had carved things into his flesh dozens of times, and he had 18 holes burned and cut into his body. It's a really hard read when you read about Richard's experiences during that time. You know, he was imprisoned for years and it was more than just being in prison. It was more even than a removal of human rights and freedoms. It was far more than just bad treatment. It also involved extensive physical and mental torture. What the communists have done to Christians surpasses any possibility of human understanding. We wrestle not against flesh and blood against the principalities and powers of evil. We saw that communism is not from men, but from the devil. It is a spiritual force, a force of evil, and can only be countered by a greater spiritual force, the Spirit of God. You know, we certainly seem to see a powerful witness in the church under persecution and why is it that there seems to be this new life generated through persecution and this new passion you know, when society sees Christians under persecution they're definitely seeing something that they have not really seen before it's really different they're seeing the suffering that which is which is Christ-like and something that's genuine it's not fake you can't you can't fake that that life so it's it's really is different to anything that the world has you know, ever seen before. It's, th it's not something that can be generated by us as human beings. It's something that is a divine gift. Richard had every reason to neglect the humanity of the prison guards and think of and treat them as such. But instead he chose to see the brokenness and lostness of the man who tortured him for fun on a daily basis. His upbringing and early years had exposed him fully to the communist agenda. Above all, the teachings of Karl Marx, Vladimir Lenin, and Leon Trotsky taught its subjects that all religion was the opium of the people. They taught that belief in the divine presented a way to suppress immediate pain and misery, thus forming an illusion of control to the suppressed, to the benefit of the oppressors. This conclusion and the brainwashing of the people to believe it was used to justify the religious purges in Russia, China, and across Eastern Europe. But Richard saw firsthand that the utopia of the proletarian rule did not result in the empowerment of the lowest social classes, but in the subjugation of them by an iron fist. 
Knowing that his guards had been brought up on the idea that morality is subjective, and there is no consequence for one's actions apart from the judgment of the party, he took the perspective that his captors were not moral beings. Communism has destroyed any moral sense in them. They boasted that they had no pity in their hearts. I learned from them. As they allowed no place for Jesus in their hearts, I decided I would leave not the smallest place for Satan in mine. Just to pick one of the many examples that uh, he experienced during that time, for three years he was confined to an underground cell with no lights, uh, no windows, and no company. The ethos of this particular punishment was to keep everything really quiet so the prison guards themselves would wear soft shoes so that when they walked down the corridors they weren't making any noise. And this particular type of torture is has a name. It's called sensory deprivation torture. So that's what he went through for three years. Throughout his many years in prison, the daily message was the same. Communism is good. Christianity is stupid. Give up. This brainwashing was a constant battle for Richard and his fellow prisoners. When asked later in life how he resisted it, he would respond, There is only one method of resistance to brainwashing. It is heart washing. If the heart is cleansed by the love of Jesus Christ, and if the heart loves him, one can resist all tortures. After eight and a half years in prison, Richard was released in 1956, partially due to public protests and partially due to the discouragement of his oppressors that he had so boldly resisted being broken. Many a man would have taken his family and fled to the hills. Even the most devout Christian pastor may have considered the suffering Richard had endured enough for a lifetime and kept his head down. But not Wormbrand. He immediately went back to his pastoral work and preached two sermons, after which he was commanded by the secret police not to take part in any more religious activity. Richard went back to his underground church work, right under the noses of the communists. He continued this work for another four years, until in 1959 he was arrested again. He was again thrown into a communist prison. However, his family was left alone this time. When he was arrested in 1948, his wife Sabina was arrested and spent three years in a slave labor camp, leaving their son Mihai to fend for himself. Three of the women who took Mihai in were beaten for helping the child of a prisoner and were left crippled for life. Communist leaders offered Sabina freedom if she would divorce Richard and renounce her faith in Christ. She boldly refused. During his second stint in prison, Richard and the others would sing, pray, and deliver sermons to one another. On one occasion, a man was giving a sermon when the guards burst in and carted him away to the beating room. After what seemed like hours, the man was brought back and thrown in a bloody heap in the middle of the cell. Slowly the man picked himself up, blood still dripping from his wounds, painfully straightened his clothes, and said, Now brethren, where did I leave off? Richard recalled, I have seen beautiful things. 
From the greatest acts of boldness in the face of death and torture to the smallest of habits, the man stood firm. One practice that kept the men together was the practice of tithing what they had, which was essentially nothing of material worth. Yet they decided to tithe the one slice of bread they were given a week, along with their daily bowl of filthy soup. Every tenth week they would take their slice of bread and give it to one of the weaker prisoners. These acts of faith had their effect on the guards. A guard told Richard the story of a man who was executed. While visiting with his wife before his death, he had told her that he died loving those who killed him, and that she was to have no bitterness towards them. He assured her that she would see him in heaven. Such faith had quite the impression on the guard, who became a Christian himself and was subsequently sent to the same prison as Richard, where he shared this story with him. Though he was in prison for most of his son's adolescence, Richard had a profound influence on young Mihai. After being asked to write a thesis against the Bible in school, he wrote, The arguments against the Bible are weak, and the quotations against the Bible are untrue. Surely the professor has not read the Bible. The Bible is in harmony with science. Mihai was expelled. Richard finally received amnesty in 1964 and was released after being a communist prisoner for a total of 14 years. He went back into ministry and pastored a small Romanian church of 35. The secret police told him that he must keep the number below 36 and that all children were forbidden to attend. Such was the communist fear of the Christian message. Out of concern that he would be imprisoned again, the Norwegian mission to the Jews negotiated for his amnesty and release from Romania for $10,000, over $80,000 today. This was even though the going rate for prisoners at the time was less than $2,000. The Romanian government had a habit of taking ransom money from the West due to its failed economy. Before he left, Richard was warned that he was not to speak of his experience in the prisons and that if he did, he would be discovered and either murdered or kidnapped and brought back to Romania for further torture. Richard accepted a move out of Romania not out of fear of further imprisonment, but due to the pleading of his fellow underground church members. This opportunity presented him with the chance to be a voice for the persecuted church throughout Eastern Europe and the world. He and his family left for Norway in December 1956. My last deed before leaving was to go to the grave of the colonel who had given the order for my arrest and who had ordered my years of torture. I placed a flower on his grave. By doing this I dedicated myself to bringing the joys of Christ that I have to the communists who are so empty spiritually. It's easy to see in these stories, the monsters that these men became. And the only thing I would say is that the more we give into sin, the easier sin becomes. And we can find ourselves over time, without the restraining grace of God, falling further and further away from his goodness. So we need to take this as a warning to our own lives, really. You, know, you don't become a monster instantly, or even over weeks. You know, ultimately, we are all sinners 
And each and every one of us has got the potential to do something truly horrific if we haven't submitted to the law and to the love of Christ. Richard visited Norway for a time and then Great Britain. He went to the United States in May of 1966 to testify in front of the U.S. Senate's International Security Subcommittee. He was encouraged to by the, the other Christians in the country after he'd been released from prison. They really wanted him to take that opportunity to go to the States to testify to the fact of what was going on in Romania at that time. And in 1966, Richard was allowed to testify to the US Senate. And one of the very dramatic things that he did at that uh, subcommittee was he just took off his shirt and showed them the scars on his body. And he said, these are my credentials. He was showing them the marks on his body as the proof of what he'd gone through and what Romania was going through at that time. He and Sabina formed what would become Voice of the Martyrs in 1967. Their goal was to work for the release and to support Christians being persecuted by the communist regimes of Eastern Europe. They returned to Romania after a 25-year absence in 1990, and Richard spent time preaching to all denominations. When giving a sermon, he would often joke that he was probably the first pastor the congregation had ever seen take the pulpit barefoot. This was due to the fact that he could not bear the pain wearing socks and shoes caused him due to the years of torture he was subjected to. Richard authored over 30 books, among them the influential In God's Underground, Marx and Satan, If Prison Walls Could Speak, and Tortured for Christ. Richard Wormbrand died in 2001 at the age of 91 in Torrance, California just six months after his beloved Sabina had passed on before him. The legacy of Richard Wurmbrand is one of possessing the boldness to live out a calling, no matter the personal cost. It is hard to imagine the level of mental fortitude it takes to resist a week of imprisonment and torture, let alone 14 years of it. The brutality of his treatment in prison is so extreme that simply reading his accounts doesn't do it justice. But what one should take from Richard's life is not the acts of the guards he was under for so long, but in his response to the man who mistreated him for over a decade. The Philadelphia Herald said of Wormbrand, He stood in the midst of lions, but they could not devour him. When someone would ask him, how he could have love for someone who was torturing him, Richard would respond. Although we were whipped, as Paul was, in our jailers, we saw the potential of the jailer in Philippi who became a convert. The gates of heaven are not closed for the communists, neither is the light quenched for them. I hate the communist system. But I love the men. I hate the sin, but I love the sinner. Communists can kill Christians, but they cannot kill their love towards even those who kill them. I have not the slightest bitterness or resentment against the communists or my torturers.
This episode of Virtuous Men was written and recorded by Jamie Adams and edited by Scott Heinig. Quotations taken from Wormbrand's autobiography, Tortured for Christ. Readings of portions of the book by Jamie Adams and Stacey Adams. And a special thanks to author Catherine McKenzie for her insight on the life of Richard Wormbrand. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and leave a review in the comments section. And don't forget to check out more Virtuous Men on our Instagram page at virtuous underscore men and give us a follow. Tune in next time for episode 5 where we discover the chivalry of the men aboard the RMS Titanic. <laughs>